We're Down. snorting cap rates and shooting up cash flow <laughs> here at Field Junkie. <laughs> We're trying to come up with a tagline here, guys. Welcome to our podcast today. <laughs> we're going to be interviewing me, Mike Nuss, Trevor Howard, Dane McKinney. I'm Gabe Johansson. We're here to talk about how you get high on deals, how you do deals, how you own real estate. You guys are having too much fun. <laughs> and since you're the, the goal, <laughs> since you're the main talker, we'll just have you interview yourself and then mm-hmm. we'll hang out here. Oh, I just need to sit here and talk for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. Act like you're right. from here. Right. We want to know what your morning <laughs> routine is like. Why, wait, wait a second. Why am I the main talker? And what does that even mean? Is that on a business card somewhere? Main talker? I, I will. Is that official? Yeah, yeah. Well, ep- you made it official. So, episode one, we started, and then you just boom, 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 boom. Oh, boom. I just took you're, over. You're yeah. It was uh, great because I didn't. Uh, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> yeah. So what are we going to do now when you guys interview me? Interview oh, the interviewer. Well, so we, we, we can ask. Him. Okay. Yeah. Right. We'll rely on Mike now, but all right. So let's get to know Gabe Day, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Go for it. Where do you even start? I don't know because that just threw me off track. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to know like. The biggest way everyone wants to know is like, how'd you do your first deal? Like, how'd you get into- Yeah, everybody investing? wants to know that. Just you want to know that, Trevor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you want to start with like about back in the day. Like, okay. The normal okay. people okay. are okay. just going like, oh, like who is Gabe and where did he come from? And okay. why is he bald? <laughs> and like, what's your <laughs> first deal though? <laughs> it is called Deal Junkies. So we, we do need to junk At some out. point. Okay, yeah. let's high level. Okay, Gabe, who are you? What do you do? Um, I'm Gabe Johansson. I am a real estate uh, professional. That's what my tax return says. I own SMI real estate, uh, real est- uh, SMI property management, SMI capital, SMI fund management. Um, and uh, I'm a real estate investor, broker, and I just love all things real estate. But I wasn't always in real estate. Um, my career path started in cars. So I was raised by, uh, have you ever watched the movie Matilda? Little girl is raised by like. Is that where they put her in the closet with the spike thing? And they, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I cried yeah. when I saw yeah. that. Yeah, Trunchbull. Like, terrifying. Trunchbull, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I uh, So my parents weren't actually like that, but I was raised in a, um, I was raised in a home that was a, a car, car home. We were in the car business. So I grew up around cars. I um, was born in California. My dad was a car dealer down there. And uh, yeah, I was raised as an only kid, pretty good kid. Um, and we moved to Oregon in 1989. My dad bought Salem Nissan on Market Street, became Johansson Salem Nissan. It just burned down the other day. Yeah. Uh, and I, I started working on that lot in 1990, the summer of 1990, I got a special workers permit. I think I was 14 years old and uh, I started washing cars and my dad hired me and said, um, that's it. You can wash cars the rest of your life. And if you want to work your way up, go work your way up. But he wasn't going to hand me any, he wasn't going to pave the way for me to move forward. So I decided pretty quickly that I hated washing cars. (laughs) <laughs> I washed a lot of cars. Uh, back then, minimum wage was $4.25. And I still remember to this day walking into the, they showed me where the time card machine was, where you, you punch in. Have you ever punched in on a time clock? Yeah. So, it's like, you know, I stuck the thing in there and, you know, it makes, makes the sound. 
Oh, no, I haven't then. I was going to yeah. say, there's <laughs> like, no way you know what it's like. Garbage. He's like, what he did it on an app or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I heard that noise and I looked at my little sheet and I saw what time it said on there. And uh, I realized at that moment I had just sold my time. I had... I wasn't I wasn't my own anymore until I came back to that machine later on. And that feeling, I don't know, from the very first time at 14 years old at $4 an hour, I hated being an employee. So you hated. learned that lesson at 14 years wow. old. Wow. First time I ever clocked in. Damn. Whose idea was it to get that job, your dad's? Uh, it was mine. Uh, my parents were pretty good about making me work for the things I wanted and I... I don't know about kids today don't seem to want much, but I wanted a lot of stuff mm -hmm. and uh, they weren't going to buy it for me. So I had to go figure out how to, how to make my own money. Um, when I was eight, I got in trouble. My, my dad did a, he did a big sale at the car lot. You know how sometimes they give you those cheesy little like gifts and stuff to come in and test drive a car or something. So back in, this is, you know, this is back in the eighties. So they had these little bronze sort of artistic painting things and they had stacks of them, these things, I don't know, you know, they couldn't have been worth very much, but they would advertise they're giving away this nice bronze artwork for coming in, you know, to buy a car, test drive a car or whatever. And so at the end of the sale, they had a bunch of these things left over, <clears throat> didn't know what to do with them. So my dad brought them home and I asked my dad if I could have them. And he said, oh yeah, you can take them, do whatever you want. He didn't realize, you know. He didn't understand, I guess, what I wanted to do with them. So I, uh, I got on my bike and I rode around town and I knocked door to door. And I, <laughs> I knew from all the fundraisers that my school had me doing that if I knocked on the door and I said I was from the school and I was there to raise money, that people would, you know, they would donate money. So I, so I came up with a, I came up with a thing. I was going to knock on the door and tell them I was from the school, but I wasn't going to tell them I was raising money for the school. I was just going to tell them. Hi, I'm Gabe. I live down the street. I go to this school <laughs> and I have this beautiful bronze artwork. I'm selling them for $15 each. <laughs> I went around that day in about two hours, I had like 300 bucks. Oh, damn. So I went home. What am I going to do? <laughs> I got my first big hit, 300 bucks. I'm going to go home. I'm eight or nine years old. What's, what are you going to do with 300 bucks in the 80s? It was a lot of money. And um, so I, sh I, I hit it in my dresser drawer and about i don't know a few weeks later or something my mom i got home from school and i could tell i was in trouble she she said she's in my bedroom she's sitting on my bed and she says i've got a bone to pick with you you know when your mom says they got a bone to pick it with you, you there's you're in trouble she so she says sit here on the bed so I sit down, I'm going, man, what did I do? And she opens up my drawer and she pulls out my cash. <laughs> she says, what is this? <laughs> and I said, that's my money. And of course I had allowance and other things and other stories I could tell about how I was saving money. But I had, <laughs> she, she says, how did you get it? And I, so I tried to explain to her, well, you know, I've got allowance and I've got this and I, I, I sell three Oreo cookies to Aaron Dorfmeyer every day at lunch for $5. <laughs> I saved the $5. Except for one day he didn't have $5. So I took his Swatch watch. So this all ha this is all happening at a very young age, right? Just instinctually. And so I've got this, I've got uh, all this money. She, and she's, you know, probably wondering how I got it. And so I explained it to her and then she stopped and looked at me and she says, you have more money than your father and I. <laughs> 
So the car dealership wasn't doing very well. (laughs) (laughs) The car business, my dad used to say it was chicken one week and feathers the next. And my folks, uh, you know, very much lived that lifestyle where there were, there were months where, uh, things were good and months where they weren't. So, um, so anyway, um, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know where where are we going well, with the. So you with, took that three hundred dollars and you rolled it into your first deal. Well, my for, the first thing my mom told me was she was never buying me anything ever again. That <laughs> I had my own money, and she wanted to know why I kept asking her to buy me crap and when I had my own money. Kids don't want to be independent these days. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't want I didn't want to spend. My, I said that's my money. I don't want to spend my money. I'm saving <laughs> that money. What are you saving it for? I don't know. Save, I'm saving the money. So that's uh, what I was going to ask. So did you take that 300? Did you save it? Did you spend it? Did you invest it? Or did oh, I, oh yeah, I spent it. I, I, uh, I was not an investor. I just wanted to make money. I was just kind of a salesman at heart. It was easy for me. I, I was born with the gift of gab, so it was easy. Um, and it's just a game. I think at that point I realized like making money wasn't going to be that hard and I just wanted to go do more of it when you were eight years old <laughs> yeah. making money wasn't well, gonna be that hard. you know it's funny it's funny you mentioned that because you know people that grow up i lived in a seemingly like the bills were paid and i wasn't worrying about where my next m- meal was going to come from but when you talk to people who grew up with nothing like money is a really important thing to them like it wires their brain a little bit different mm-hmm. and for me i didn't necessarily have that but i did have this underlying sort of fear that we were going to lose it all. Like I, I, like my mom grew up uh, impoverished and, you know, she slept in a closet. And in those days they had to like go to the Creek to fill up a bucket of water, to heat it on the stove, to pour it in a pan, to take a bath. Like, I mean, this is like things that most of us can't even really imagine. And so she comes from that mindset of being concerned and worried about money and not having money. And so she sort of instilled that into me, I guess, poverty thinking a little bit. And um, and so, yeah, I was worried. I was afraid like I was like, you know. I got to go figure out a way to make money. Like, I mean, I was worried about not having enough money at eight years old. I had to go figure out a way to make money and I was going to go do it. So, well, I don't even know what the question was. How'd we get off on that? (laughs) I asked you how you did your first deal. Oh yeah. That's more fun. First deal is not as fun as that. Okay. So So, so riding your bicycle around when you're eight years old, making 300 bucks is more fun. So that's when you were in California. still. California. Yep. Fresno, California. My dad, my dad owned dealerships in Redding and uh, Fresno with his partners. And we would sort of bounce back and forth between the two. It's my love for Shasta Lake. I was going to say, do you like Redding more? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Have you been Wait. to Fresno? Uh, no. I, don't, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> okay. No. You don't need to go. Maybe I've been through, but... So you decide punching in's not for you. Yeah, being an employee. There you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I was, from a young age, I realized, you know, I did not want to be an employee. I worked in my dad's car lot. I worked my way up through the ranks and over the years <clears throat> I came up. I was selling cars by the time I was 18. I had to be 18 to sell cars. Um, I was in finance, you know, by the time I was 19. I ended up on the desk in my early 20s and by 23 I was the general sales manager. I had worked I had gone through and had to interview and work through the managers and I'm sure you know it's the owner's kid whatever. I probably got more opportunity than other people might have, but I was just there. Like the thing about a car lot is you you could barely have two brain cells to rub together and if you just go to the same car lot and get a job and stay there for like 10 years you'll end up running the place cuz everybody else bails. Like you just worked your way up through attrition. So I ended up 
at 23 as the general sales manager. Um, and I had, I think most of my staff that worked for me was, was older than me. I mean, I had, you know, sales guys that were in their fifties and sixties that were working for us. Okay. And then how do you transition to real estate from that? Well, so 20 years, I did 20 years in cars. And for me, I say I did 20 years because it felt like a prison sentence. There was a lot of fun in there. There's a lot of, um, a lot of education. I I would definitely say that learning about sales and marketing and just the world and people and um, how to put deals together, how to do creative deals and stuff like that definitely come from my days in the car business. I would recommend that anybody get in the car business, spend a couple years, maybe a little more, um, not 20 (laughs) if you don't have to. Uh, Of course, I started when I was 14. So, you know, I I would say that cars would be a good industry for anybody looking to get in to sales, especially somebody that wants to get into brokering real estate. I would suggest before, uh, if you don't have any sales experience, to start with something like cars first and spend a couple years and really hone your sales skills before you get into something like brokering. Um, but you're asking me how I get, you just well, want to go straight to no, real no, no, estate. No, no. How do I, to dive into this. He wants to know about a deal. No, 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 like, I want to cut you off life. real quick. I'm Trevor. I want to know about a deal. What deal, <laughs> what deal do you have? No, I want to cut you off real quick. So okay. you said you didn't want to be an employee, right? And you realized that early on when you were punching in. And then for 20 years, you were an employee. After so that? for me, the management though. part part of it was, it was, my fam- it was the family's dealership. So in my brain, I sort of told myself I was building something for me that would one day be mine which isn't and it burned down the other day, but it's still there. Um, they'll still sell you a Nissan if you want one. Um, so yeah, I, uh, you know, 20 years of just, I guess, feeling like I was a business owner. I, my dad was the kind of guy where when he got his own store, um, he sort of went and played golf and I was very young. I mean, and it was like, okay, it's up to you guys now. Go make it happen. Like he felt that being a business owner was retirement and that once he had his own, now it was his time to go drive around in his convertible and play golf every day, which is what he did for 20 years. So I gave my dad a very wonderful retirement, mm-hmm. but I, and I had to learn how to run a car dealership. So, and he was a great businessman and a great car guy and all the above better than I, but, um, you know, I learned a lot of, I learned a lot of lessons from him and everybody else. I mean, there were, there were a lot of great memories that, that happened there, but I didn't feel as if I were an employee and, um, very early on from the time I was 18, I was commission based. So you don't make money unless you produce. Yeah. So I was on the eat what you kill pay plan from the time I was 18 years old. So from your dad, I mean, one of your biggest skills I see you have today is your ability to like, I, I don't know if I want to call it delegating, but it kind of is delegating. Like you're empowering people to run with whatever their vision is, or you I don't, I don't know. You can explain it better than me, maybe, Dane. But um, did you learn that from your dad then? Um, maybe. I, I think that I um, I think I have natural leadership ability. Um, you know, from the time I was a kid, if they put you into a small group of five and told you to go work on a project, I sat down and I took charge and I I was the head, you know, I was always the leader of the table. We sit down to do a podcast. I pick up the mic and I fire it up and we start going. I mean, it's just, it. it's not something I'm trying to do. It's just something that happens. I think that um, one of the key things in leadership is you have to trust. And so I always say that I'm not a genius, but I have the ability to recognize genius and I have the ability to attract genius. So you guys are a prime example. I get to sit in a room with three great real estate minds. Um, And so 
I think that when you ha- when you come from that perspective, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I think Steve Jobs said once that you hire people smarter than you and then you have them tell you what to do. I think that's a great way to run a business is to bring people in. All the people that, that run my businesses, I trust them 100%. I don't ever one time you know, wake up in the middle of the night or get up in the morning and go like, oh my gosh, I hope that they're doing it well they're doing it I, I i want you know they have to be the right people and i have to trust them and give them you know my i have to i have they have to know that i've got their back no matter what and we do collaborate and we and i you know i i think the way i see myself in my businesses is more like a composer so you ever think about this if you ever, i mean i don't go to the orchestra or anything but if you've seen an orchestra and there's like 50 people in there and these are like the highest trained musicians in the world right and they're playing all these weird instruments and they're all doing what they're doing right and they've got their sheet music and stuff i mean why doesn't somebody just say okay one two three go and just let them go like they're the best musicians in the world but they have to have a dude standing up with this little stick (laughs) telling them like he's doing this little thing right that's me. And that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they need some dummy that stands up at the top and tells, like, oh, yep, here, here, you know. So anyway, that's how I kind of feel is that I'm I um I'm definitely not the musician. I'm I'm the composer, uh, but I trust. I I, I um, have been blessed with wonderful people, um, a terrific team, and um, you know, I just I feel like. You know, it's, I, I don't want to be a micromanager. I don't want it all to be on me. Yeah. So selfish question. How do you pick the right people? Cause that's something I've been struggling with. Um, me and Dane just hired a marketer, um, who just well. took like, <laughs> well, I, so the problem was I hired the marketer. He just took like three. <laughs> Dane says, well, <laughs> so I'm not allowed to hire anymore. Only Dane is. I've never hey, talked to At least you learned that lesson quickly and fired. Quickly. Well, I keep relearning it. So before, before you teach these guys a, a protocol for hiring and firing people and getting into the business of business, cause that's what Trevor likes to do. The deals. <laughs> How do I get in here and fix shit? So what I'm, I, I know you the least out of anyone here. I have had the pleasure of kind of twilight of your career isn't the right example, but, uh, or the right analogy, but meeting you at a point in time where now you, you, you just kind of be who you are, which is a leader. And then there's a lot of benefit from it. And hearing your story, I hear a kid who learned about leverage very easy on and very early on in life, probably through a lot of easy lessons through a lot of hard lessons. And I think that as a society, we take the word leverage and we, we make that a taboo word. It's such a bad word. It's a judgmental word. But what it is, is you have leverage all throughout your life and people are a way to leverage. Mm-hmm. And when you do that really, really well, you can actually create an atmosphere where you can leverage people. And then you set up an atmosphere where they can leverage people. And it's not just a you think of a multi-level marketing scheme. But when you do it in an arena of an industry like car sales or like real estate investment, now you have this network where you kind of get to be this point where you can be. And the role of sales and leadership is, is I'm glad that we kind of went down that road. Would you say you gained more of your leadership skills at a young age or you think you were really, it was the car, the car, the car era where you actually were in management and you had to lead people on a, on a paycheck day-to-day basis where you, where you learned your best skills? I've had a lot of really great mentors um, from early on and I've got to watch how they lead. 
Um, and I think, you know, it is funny. We talk about leveraging money and leveraging people. And it is what I, what I do is leveraging people. Um, but it's because I love people. And I think that you can't lead people unless you love them. I mean, it's, it sounds a little touchy feely, but it's, uh, it's true. Like I, I actually care. <laughs> I'm trying to help, you know, I'm, I'm trying to provide jobs and I'm trying to help people own more real estate and I'm trying to do good things. And I think that it's pretty easy for somebody to get behind. It's pretty easy for somebody to say, I want to work for that guy. I want to work for that company. I want to do these things that are good because it's, it isn't just about me. Um, and there's a lot more fulfillment. Life is just a lot richer. And so I tend to be, I, I, I mean, there's guys out there that are very successful and maybe they have some trade secrets or they have some things they just don't share with anybody. I sort of look at that like that's an evil way to do things. <laughs> so I find something that I think works. And then rather than just go off and take it for my own selfish gain and do it over and over and over again, I try to tell as many people I know to do it also. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, some of the brokers on our team call me the preacher or say that I'm like, you know, we have, when we have one of our meetings, it's like going to real estate church. It really is just very simple. I think that, um, I think that, you know, money is sort of a taboo thing to talk about. I saw you post on Facebook the other day, like, is it okay to talk about money? Um, and it is sort of a taboo thing and it shouldn't be. It should be something that we're able to talk about. And everybody needs financial security. I think everybody wants financial freedom. Um, and how do you get that? And so, you know, I don't know. I, um, I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of folks that have come way before me that have taught me so much. To be honest, like I've never been to a real estate seminar. I've never listened to podcasts. Um, there's a couple of guys that are, <laughs> we can talk about Grant Cardone for a minute. Um, <laughs> my favorite. I don't, I don't, Mike loves Grant, <laughs> my favorite. uncle G. Um, uh, but I, I read a couple of books and I got to say like, um, you know, the rich dad, poor dad stuff, you know, spend 20 bucks and read that book. Um, I, I don't, I always take every opportunity to tell anybody I meet with to make sure they read that book. Some folks, when they tell me they want to meet with me, I tell them they have to read the book before, before we meet. So I don't, I've never been to a class. I never spent more than 20 bucks on anything Kiyosaki. Um, but I think that the things that he talks about are 100% accurate. And I think that it's been a foundation for me. So, um, yeah, I don't know. The, the, the leadership leading people is, you know, there's something that we used to say going back to Cardone, you know, I, I was Cardone certified. So Cardone has this whole car business training system. Mm -hmm. Cardone didn't even do it. It's not even his business. It's just his name. And somebody took his ideas and some other ideas and put them together, I think. And they say, can we use your name and we'll go sell it and we'll give you a check. He said, yeah, it's kind of what put him on the map, I think, really. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't him. He didn't even go out and set up that, that sales system. So anyway, I am Cardone certified. <laughs> Where's my plaque? I want to <laughs> show everybody. How much did you uh, spend for that? <laughs> nothing. The dealership paid for that one. Okay. Um, but there's something that they that you know we used to teach, and I don't know if this came for Cardone or not, but um, we used to say they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that it doesn't matter if you're on a car lot 
or in a real estate deal or any other business that you're in, if you've got people that are relying on you or people that you're hiring and training and trying to lead an organization, I think it's super important first for people to know that you care. Mm-hmm. And then once they know that they can trust you as the leader, then everything else becomes very easy. There are some organizations that don't run very well and they don't trust their leadership. And it's just a grind all the time to try to be getting everybody on the same page and doing what they need to be doing. So I won't say that, you know, our our businesses run uh, perfectly or anything, but I think that at least everybody feels like they feel, they feel good about where they work and uh, and who they work for and Hopefully they feel like they work for each other and not just me. We're a whole we're a whole team. Like it's I play one position on the team, but I'm not it's not about me. So did you learn to pick those people through the mistakes you've made of like flipping and like did that because like how do you <laughs> Oh here we go. How the do deals. you how do you get in to pick the right people and know who is a good person to pick? Like how did you because you have great people now that handle so much of it for you. How do you know it's the right person versus your other dude who loses? Well, in some cases, I bought businesses that already had great people um, doing another one this week. Um, and so how do you know, I guess to your point is, how do you know if they're good or how, or they're not? And this comes down to you know something I don't have the brain cells to think about right now. But, you know, I mean, you a lot of it for me is... Um, I like to give everybody a chance. And so maybe I'm a little too easy. Like I just like people. And so I've partnered with plenty of the wrong people. I've hired plenty of the wrong people. And you can do that long enough and you can start to sort of feel your way around a little bit better and do a better job. I mean, you know, you're young, you're getting started. You hire a couple wrong people. They can't do it. I mean, you're not going to hire that same type of marketing guy the next time. If you hired him and he didn't do the job, you're going to figure out what you didn't like about that. Just like when you're out going on 200 first dates to pick your girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, you figured out maybe, I, you know. <laughs> this podcast is about you. <laughs> I know, but you tried to turn yours about me. So I, I have to throw it back a little bit. So good. Like three first dates in one day. <laughs> it worked. It worked. Found a good one. Found a good one. Uh, uh, I was going to say that that's actually what drew me to do to you for sure was that I'm, I'm similar in that way. I mean, Trevor is too. Trevor just wants to do a deal with everybody. Um, but it doesn't when, work when we met. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, why I'm asking. It does. does sometimes. Uh, Trevor's sole purpose now, wherever he goes, will you do a real estate deal with me? It's like a lost puppy. <laughs> Not all deals go bad because of the partner. It's just sometimes you find out you got a bad partner when the deal goes bad. You know, you could do a lot of deals and and maybe have bad partners and not even know it because the deals go okay. So you don't know you got a bad partner until something goes south. I think a big thing too that like you're good at in everything that you, I don't know, as I've done more and more with you, what I've realized is how outlining the roles ahead of time, which I mean, everybody within a real estate partnership knows that that's like key. But before you go into one, you don't realize how important it is to be like, you know what what are you doing in this deal like it's like it's like a marriage yeah <laughs> yeah so on that note how do you we'll get into deals now for trevor how do you compartmentalize the value that each everyone brings to a deal um well first off i know my my role and what i want to do and what i'm good at and usually what you want to do and what you're good at are, are the same thing so 
I know that I'm not the guy that's going to sit down for four hours and work on spreadsheets. So that's Trevor's job. You know, I'm, I know that I'm not the guy that's going to want to go chase lenders and fill out applications and be, you know, working on term sheets for the next two months while we do a deal. So in every partnership I have, mostly other, I have other uh, people on the team that are working lenders and stuff. So, um, I try to be for myself, I try to be a little bit higher level. And, and part of that is just because that's where my, my skill set is. I think being more, a little bit more visionary and also just because I'm dumber than everybody else on the team. Like I just can't, there's just some things I'm just not going to do or not going to take the time to do. I'm very, you know, they tell the doctors told my mom when I was a kid that I was ADHD and, um, and she told him, no, that was a misdiagnosis or something like that. So like very much so like I am not going to sit still and dig into something too, too terribly deeply. So for me, if I'm going to partner with somebody on a deal, number one, you know, I'm thinking about, do I like this person? Do I want to be around this person? Um, specifically with guys like these two sitting in the room, Trevor and Dane, I meet guys like that. And I think, I want to make sure they don't go anywhere. I'm going to put I'm going to put my name on deals with these guys so they don't, you know what I'm saying? Like I mean, there is some level of that. Mm-hmm. Um but there are other there are other folks and some sometimes this is hard to put into words why you have an instinct of why not to partner with somebody, but it you know, I think that when you sit down if you decide we're all going if the four of us decide we're going to do a deal today, one of the things I want to know is how much money do you guys have? And this goes back to the taboo part of like, should we talk about money? Well, how much money do you have? So these, you know, these guys are asking me every day how much is in my bank account. Well, in a lot of partnerships, you know, I mean, that probably is something you're like, hmm, well, I wonder if I should ask or not. Like, you know, I mean, it's just sort of like, that's your business. It's private. It's personal. Well, guess what? If we're getting married, it ain't personal anymore. You're going to tell me how much money you have. And uh, by the way, if things go south, you got to be able to write a check, mm-hmm. right? This is the number one problem is maybe you get, maybe you argue about what color it should be or how high the rent should go or whatever. But ultimately you can get around just about anything other than, Hey guys, we got to write a big check. This is your part. This is your part. This is your part. This is my part. And somebody raises their hand and goes, uh, I can't write my check. Okay. Well, this is weird. Who, who, <laughs> you guys want to write the check for me? Can I, <laughs> can I borrow some money? Like what, what are we going to do? Right? So this is just the reality is you want to make sure in any deal that you've got partners that when things go south, that, that they can step up to the plate. Uh, not, o- not only just in operations and trying to get the thing back on track, but also uh, in being able to borrow money or having assets that you know can be borrowed against um, or having cash or whatever the case may be. Uh, so I don't know. I think that um, you know <laughs> we sat in the car. <laughs> Trevor and I bought a deal a couple of years ago, and we're sitting in the car. It's pouring down rain outside, and we got a few of us in the car. And we're gonna buy this. We're gonna buy this deal. We're excited about it. You know, it's a, that's the problem. Is the deal's exciting? It's like yeah, 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 yeah. Just set up the LLC. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna own this much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like oh, we're just gonna make a ton of money. And everything's great. The problem is you get going. Like this is this is like. This is like new girlfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's hot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're having sex. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get married. And then like you wake up a couple years later with a couple kids and you're like, oh, shit. What did I do? It's expensive. (laughs) (laughs) The honeymoon phase of a deal can be dangerous. And so- 
um, in any new partnership, and and anytime we buy a deal, I think we want to lay out the groundwork for who's going to do what, who's going to be, who's going to be the asset manager, who's going to be the one that deals with the bank, who's going to be the one that goes out and you know kicks out the drug dealer, who's going to be the one that you know whatever goes over and maybe cleans up a unit on the weekend. Or um, there's there's a lot of things you can do. And so then the question becomes: when we're sitting and looking at this deal, we're going to hire property management. We kind of got it all. We we know how we're going to run this deal. But then the real question is: I say, okay, guys, if we make a million dollars, how much of that do you want? Well, everybody wants the whole thing. (laughs) I'll take it, right? But then if we flip the switch and we go, okay, if we lose a million dollars, how much of that check do you want to write? Somebody raises their hand in the back seat. I'll take 5%, you know, right? Because I mean, when you think about it on those terms, Mm -hmm. you got to partake in the in the good and and the bad right mm-hmm. and so anyway that's that's one of one of the ways to do it and that's i i you know i think in a partnership uh just like a marriage um you've and your part in your marriage is your is your most important partnership um but in a business partnership i think it's really important just like in a marriage to communicate and that communication should start before you ink the deal like you should have some of those roles figured out first. And then as you go through, everybody should be able to sit down and have a conversation and go like, I mean, we've all had bad partners and you know why they're a bad partner. It's usually because when the shit hits the fan, they don't pick up the phone or, you know, they're not willing to sit face to face and talk it through and figure out how we're going to, how we're going to work through it. Yeah. Moved on to the next thing. And, and you know, you nailed it. It's that creation of the LLC, even like goal planning, that's a dopamine rush. So we literally feel that chemical in our brain and then post closing, it's like that insulin kicks in and you got to work it off and get that blood sugar flowing. <laughs> and going over roles and talking about who writes a check when you lose money, that's a good way to push some of that dopamine away as you're in that early honeymoon stage. It's a it's, little bit of a buzzkill. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I thought we were just going to make a bunch of money. Why do we got to talk about losing money? That's actually probably one of the best ways I'm going to start changing my partnership conversation going forward is that's excellent advice is flipping the switch. And what if we're talking about a loss? Mm -hmm. And partner with people you want to be around, you know, partner with people you want to go to Hawaii with and you want to hang out with and be around. I mean, it's the same reason you wouldn't marry a woman that you don't want to hang out with. It's, you know, these partners are, I mean, they can be the best and worst part of real estate in my opinion. We haven't really got into real estate, but it's my favorite part of real estate. I love people partners, but I love people. And so, and even the bad partners, I think I love them even more because they have taught me so much. You know, they taught me about who to not partner with. They've taught, I wouldn't have known these things that I know right now if I did, you know, that's one of the rules that I learned when I lost a lot of money was I went to Paul Curley and uh, we'll have Paul on the show here so that everybody knows who we're talking about. But when I was losing a bunch of money and I sat down with him and I said, I said, well, we're losing a bunch of money and I got this partner and he goes, oh, just, he goes, don't even say it. Don't tell me. He goes, let me guess. Your partner doesn't have any money. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> Because otherwise, I wouldn't be having the problem, right? <laughs> We'd all be pitching in and doing what we need to do and solving the problem. So, um, you know, it leads uh, – the bad things – you know, what's funny is all the good things in life, I can trace back to bad things that have happened to me. And there's just so many silver linings, you know? There's just – 
the the failed businesses and the lost money and all the stuff um, in the end brought me people that now I make a lot of money with and have successful businesses with. So, um, and you know, some of those people don't make it along the way and they're just not, they're, they just weren't meant to be, they weren't supposed to be my partner. So they're not. How much real estate do you own just yourself versus in partnerships? I don't own any real estate by myself, not one piece of real estate. How much real estate do you own? Is uh, that? <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask Trevor. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Couple units. Mr. <laughs> Do it by 150 million. Yeah. Um, well, I was looking at, I was just looking at it last night. I don't even remember what it was, yeah. but he, he fluffs the numbers anyway. It's probably not right. <laughs> it I depends. Are, I you, are you trying to get a loan right now? Dollars. No. Yeah. It's, <laughs> on point. It's 200. We're working on, uh, the portfolio is about a thousand doors today. Mm-hmm. I'm in about f- maybe five or six main partnerships. Uh, my percentage of ownership is about 35%. Okay. So, and you did that in seven years, right? Or eight years, 10 years, something like that? Um, yeah, I didn't start. So that's, so we sort of like jump forward now, um, 20 years in cars. So now, you know, from, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties and um, my dad had some health problems, decided he wanted to sell the dealership. And he and I sat down and had a conversation and he said, I'm worried about what you're going to do. And I said, no, I'm worried about what you're going to do. And he said, no, I'm worried about what you're going to do. And we did this thing back and forth. And I said, dad, like, I'll be okay. It's going to be all right. And so he decided to sell the store. And I had, I had more than a dozen offers in the auto industry. And um, I knew I did not want to be in cars anymore. And so I was uh, a good friend of mine who at the time owned Shelter Management Inc., which is where the SMI name comes from. He invited me to lunch and uh, he offered me something I didn't even understand what he was offering me, but he basically offered to be uh, my mentor and bring me into real estate and be his for me to be his exit partner in the brokerage side of, of SMI. And uh, this was the kind of guy, when you talk about leadership, this is the kind of guy where if he sat me down and said like, you know, we're going to go start an outhouse business or make, you know, fishing lures, I would have just gone with him. I would have done whatever, like whatever he told me to do, I would have done it. I was, whatever he said was, on board. it was gold. I was going to do it. And uh, his name's Brian Miles. He's a very special man and, and uh, dear to my heart. And I wouldn't be doing any of this without him. Um and uh, anyway, he was he was, he had been in property management for a long time. Went into the brokerage side, kind of didn't like it. He was really good at it, but I don't think he really enjoyed the the brokerage side. And of course, we went through the crash, and things were not as fun. And um, and so anyway, he was ready to get out of that side. And so that's how I that's how I got in to real estate was somebody offered me a position to come in and and be there. Now, would he have done that if I didn't have 20 years in car business? Probably not. That's not an opportunity that's going to pop up just for anybody. And before you decided to get into real estate, obviously, hard discussion with your dad, he decides to sell the business. Was it the fact that it was the car industry, this is why you no longer wanted to do it? Or was it the fact that you no longer had ownership that you were looking for? Well, yeah, that was part of it. I mean, I wasn't going to go work for somebody else. If I yeah. was going to do it, I was going to do it for him. And um and I just, you know, for him, he he was just at the end of the rope. I mean, we had, it, we went through 08 and, you know, we had our company size had shrunk down. We were not selling, you know, very many cars and it was just, 
it was just a really hard way to to make money. And so he was having some health problems. Nissan was all over him and, uh, you know, wanted him to build a new store and do all these things. It was just like, he's just fed up and he's done with it. And so it was, it was time to sell. And for me, that moment was like a relief. <laughs> oh, I get to finally go like live my own life and go do something I want to do, you know, and build my own legacy. And it wasn't going to be uh, in the car business. I have dear friends that are in the car business. Actually, I have a few friends who've come out of the car business and come with me in real estate. Um, there's nothing wrong with the car business. Uh, well, maybe there is. I think the business is actually kind of broken. There's nothing wrong with the people in the car business. Actually, yeah, maybe there is. Um, that. <laughs> That's where I picked up that cocaine habit. <laughs> you guys had a pretty cool dealership. <laughs> that was before I was snorting cap rates, snorting at something else. Um, <laughs> Just evolved into a better asset class. Always hooked on something. So had you even thought about owning any real estate prior to that? Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> I guess uh, uh, here's some more story. So I got married in between my junior and senior year of high school. I had two kids by the time I was 19. I don't think I knew I was 19. I <laughs> Dave, Dave's I just always forget. So yeah, I'm 19 years old. I have I have a couple of kids, and because I was young and I had these kids. You know, the government's willing to pay for your college and stuff. So I went to um, community college for a couple of years. Um, I call it UCLA, but U University Chimekita Lancaster Avenue. Mm -hmm. um, some people call it Chimekita. Uh, I love that. Actually, I had a really good education. It was like kind of like getting what I should have got in high school, but like it was, I don't know. It was like, I kind of felt like I redid high school, but it was better. I don't know. I'm glad it's I did not it. How college I think I would be even be. dumber if I hadn't gone there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say? That's not how college is supposed to work. What? Oh, like you do it over and over again? <laughs> you do high school over again. But, but wait, sorry, continue. It was community college, Trevor. Not <laughs> all of us are like Harvard grads. Talented, like gifted nuclear engineers. Yeah, we're not all like you, Trevor. Some of us are dumb. Okay, be nice to me. We um, have to get by on our books. <laughs> <laughs> so, where was I? Oh, nineteen. You asked me if I ever bought any real estate. So, I went to my dad and I said, "Hey, dad." Um, I want to buy a house. And he goes, okay, well, I got this college fund for you. And he'd put aside a little bit of money for me to go to college. And he said, because you didn't need that for school, um, you can use it for a down payment on a house. So at 19, on my own credit, I went and bought a home, first house. Um, you know, in, in a not so surprising twist, the first marriage didn't work out <laughs> as, as probably most 17 year old marriages don't. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was in my early twenties and we were going through a divorce and it was time to, uh, we had to figure out what we we're going to do, sell that house, do whatever. And I ended up, I was able to set her up into a refi and have her buy me out of, uh, half of my equity and I was able to go buy another house. And then a couple of years later, I was able to sell that house and use that as a down payment to go into another one. And I, I remember thinking like when I saw how much my equity was building in these houses, I was like, everybody should own a house. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. Like, I think I make almost as much money on my house as I do working, <laughs> you know, and it's just, I'm just making the payment and living here. This is crazy. So 
got built some equity up and went out, you know, it was the early 2000s. I went out and I bought this beautiful home in, in West Salem, 3000 square foot house. And I'm still, I'm still fairly young. I'm, I'm in my late twenties at that point. And, um, and then the crash hit, you know, and that house, when I bought it for 350, it went to 500 and it went back to 300. And I had borrowed money against it and done all the things everybody does, use it as a piggy bank and do all that stuff. So when I got to that part of like, now I was actually, you know, I was going through another divorce. And um, so I've been divorced twice. If you guys are wondering, I have three adult daughters and two grandchildren. So there we got that part, the personal stuff out of the way. Trevor doesn't like all that (laughs) stuff. He just wants to know about deals. He wants to know if my grandkids are doing deals yet. Um, so then when I was stuck in that house and I was house poor and I'm making a payment I could barely make and I had no way out, then I hated real estate and I did not want to own another house. Uh, I didn't, I didn't own real estate after that for a little while and for actually for quite a while. Um, I think 2015, I ended up buying another house. Matter of fact, I owned, probably more than 20 doors before I ended up, maybe 30 doors before I bought a house again. I lived in my wife's business for free. I was like Trevor. I drove a 200,000 mile Prius, lived in my wife's business for four years. We shared one car, actually. We only had one, we had one Prius. Your girlfriend at least has her own car. (laughs) Mine didn't. We had to share the same car. And, uh, but we just, we just bootstrapped this whole thing. And, um, so, yeah, I, I kind of thought at that time I was cool with owning cash flowing real estate, but I didn't want the doodads as Kiyosaki would call it. I didn't want all the personal debt and credit cards and car loans and all that stuff. And so I kept my personal expenditures down really, really low and uh, live like that. And I, to be honest with you, could still live like that today. I would be 100% okay. It was it was fine. It was great. Um, but it was sacrifice and it was sacrifice that not a lot of people would make. Um, not a lot of people, like you tell somebody, Hey, you should buy a duplex and live in one side. And they'll go like, Oh, but my wife doesn't want to live next door to tenants or I don't want to fix toilets on the weekend or whatever. So, uh, there was, there was some sacrifice in there, but I was out buying multifamily before I, before I bought another house. And I think, you know, you can, Kiyosaki says that a house is not an asset because it doesn't generate cash flow. but I've, you know, in Oregon, if you do it right, you can make a ton of equity in your house and it is a great way to, you know, tap in and do other real estate deals. So with all that delayed gratification, which I think is a component to exponential type success, had you not had it, how do you think, what would that have done to your growth? Had I not had what? Your delayed gratification. Had you just been started to eat your assets instead of accumulate them? So what I heard was someone who lived frugal, saved, invested, and more importantly, did that over a long period of time. And I don't know any real estate investor or operator who is successful without having that period of delay gratification. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Delay. Yeah. I call it sacrifice. I mean, it's, um, you have to give up some of the things that you could, you think you could afford today for a better tomorrow. It's probably a better label for it. Sacrifice. It is sacrifice. Um, and not many people want to make sacrifice. I mean, it is, you know, we used to do that all the time in the car business. It's like, hey, your payment is three fifty, and they said, well, I can only afford three hundred. Well, if you give up cigarettes, 
you know, or <laughs> I see you're drinking a Starbucks. You know, those things cost about five bucks a piece. You'd skip 10 Starbucks a month. You can have your brand new car. Uh, wouldn't be productive at work though. <laughs> Behavior pattern is the easiest thing to change. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, I think, you know, I didn't learn the sacrifice thing till later after I lost it all and had to start over. In the beginning, I didn't want to delay gratification. I wanted to have, I wanted to have it all and I wanted it now. And then as I got older and I lost it all, I think one of the things was I was afraid life would sort of come to an end if I lost it all. But when I lost it all, um, that was not the end. It was the beginning, like losing it all and like moving back in with my parents, you know, and when I'm in my thirties, you know, to try to be like, I could have figured out a way to get an apartment, but I wanted to save money and I wanted to build a business. I wanted to do these other things. And so like, this is not ideal, you know, like, been divorced twice. I mean, this is not really a success. Like my sheet doesn't really total up a bunch of success. You guys talk about like, oh, Gabe, you're successful and everyone follows you and you're a leader and all this stuff. Yeah. But like, I mean, if you go back and look at the the trail of tears that brought me here, it's like the losses are way, they're way higher than wins. Like my, if I'm a basketball team, like I'm not making it to the playoff. I'm like, what do you say first? The losses or the wins? The wins are first. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm like one in a hundred, you know, I'm like, there's like literally way more losses than, than there are wins. It's just a really big win. Well, you know, and all the losses were wins too. Oh, so you're a, a hundred and oh then. The losses, the losses led me to the big win. Yeah. 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 yeah so to, to, to have the delayed gratification and, um, and, uh, I don't know, I, I guess, I had already had it before and and I felt like I can remember those times where I'm, you know, here we are. I'm like, I've got, I, I used to say, as long as I had like an iPhone and an Xbox, okay. I'm cool. I thought you said a, like a safe full of cash and a gun. $20,000. Yeah, that, $20, that I added yeah. that on later. Yeah, I said, if I had a safe <laughs> with 20,000 cash and a loaded gun, I, then I'd feel safe. But like- but for just personal enjoyment purposes, like, I mean, Xbox. Okay. I, I'm a video game guy. And um, I mean, what else do you need? I mean, everybody's just sitting and look at their phone. You anyway. love that Hummer. Yeah. Now I have, I have <laughs> the super. It's guy. pretty cool. <laughs> I have other toys now that, that I like. Yeah. Yep. Uh, no, I, I, I think that I used to, nobody likes delayed gratification, but everybody likes trade-offs. If you can view it as like a like a direct correlation, because I think people don't view it as connecting, I guess. And so when you were doing that, you knew that you were saving up towards what goal? Did you have a goal? I mean, what was the I you know, honestly, my goal <laughs> I went through so many years of um, you know, my my child support and alimony. You know, going through the harder years of the car business when my I got my pay. I mean, I, I'm running a car dealership. It's not a low. It's not a low level job. It's a high stress, five six days a week. You know, sixty hours a week, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would get my paycheck, and I would I would have like three four hundred bucks left to live on, and everything else went to child support and alimony and health insurance for my kids. Jeez. So I, I was like Trevor. I had to learn how to live off of nothing. Yeah, you know, eight so, year old you had more money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one of the cool things about you can relate with mom and dad. <laughs> one of the cool things about um, 
<laughs> yeah, eight year old. Where where did you get that from? <laughs> uh, eight year old back eight, on better days. Eight year old me did have. You should have started selling those little paintings again. The little bra. You can you can live on three or four hundred bucks a month. You can do it, can't you, Trevor? Yeah, for sure. What, one of the cool things is about hitting that kind of bottom is you realize you don't really need much to be happy. As a matter of fact, not having as much is kind of a is kind of freeing. It it it, it felt really good. I mean, I um, I can remember. <laughs> I I became like a four hundred beacon. I call I call all of my. Um, credit cards up and I go like, Hey, I lost my job. We're closing the car dealership and I'm going to have a little bit of money and I just want to pay this thing off. I don't want to, I don't want to have this credit card anymore. And they said, okay, that's cool. We'll settle out and we'll just get, you know, you can pay a percentage of it and we'll shut it down. They said, but you got to stop making payments on it. (laughs) What? I got to stop making payments. Yeah. We don't settle out of these things unless you're, you have to be in default first. Mm Oh, okay. Well, all right. So I went from, you know, perfect credit my whole life, selling cars. I was really concerned about my credit score and all that. And I said, whatever. And I stopped making payments on my credit card. I I I uh I got out from everything. So in my in my instant gratification days, you know, I was I was making maybe 150, 200 grand a year and my nut was like 11 or 12,000 bucks. It's pretty good. And so I lived a life that looked probably almost as good as the one I live today. And, uh, you know, I felt like I thought making 150, 200 K a year to me, I thought I was doing really well. I thought that was a, I thought that was a lot, but I mean, I was still, I was still poor. (laughs) I was still, I was still broke. (laughs) It was in my head (laughs) as that mindset thing. Like I didn't understand how to manage money or do all that. So I had to, you know, like, like a lot of people I had to get, kicked in the nuts and um it had, it had to hurt you're a salesman you didn't think like an owner right so you're like i see a salesman a business owner an investor and kind of those seasons you learn those skills and when you're 19 years old making 200 grand and spending 12 and you've never owned a business you've never had an employee you don't have a balance sheet. it was a little later in life but okay. yeah i was making good money though when i was in, in my 20s but i didn't have any money because it was it was just it didn't. It didn't mean anything. It right. was all. Exactly. Came in, came in. My best car salesman would take their paycheck and go blow it in one day at the at the lottery machine. What do you call that? The po- video poker. They go drink and do drugs and play video poker in a day or two. Their whole. I mean, this is like best guys I got, and they just go keep selling cars and do it all over again. In a day or two, the money's gone. <laughs> you make twenty grand a month. It's gone in two days. <laughs> They don't work out in real estate. <laughs> so what would you, what would, what, what's your title in your business card then? Who are you like now today? Um, which business card? Well, that's um, the question. How would you define what you are? Um, well, I, I call myself president and CEO and that's only because my CPA told me that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, it's really boring. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, boring. Yeah, we have one one guy on our team who used to work in another business with me, and his business card said he was the chief friend maker. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I do. Right. Chief friend maker makes sense. Yeah. What should I put on my business card, Mike? That's more exciting. I I visionary. Know. I don't know. I I've never handed a business card out in the last twenty years, so I have them. They just sit on my desk. 
but I'll come up, I'll give myself a new title if you got, I'm not all about it. I'm not all about titles. I don't care. Um, That's funny. I'm the same way. I don't have business cards either. And I don't hand them out. Well, I mean, like I, somebody goes like, what should we put on this business card? I'm like, I don't know. What do you do with a business card? I honestly don't know. What do you do? Do you it's guys carry mark. business? It's a bookmark. Do you hand out business cards? No, people don't. Do people ever take a picture of one or something? But I've got the one on my phone, the little QR code that you can do. Can't you just tap? Yeah, you just tap your phones together, hold it over your phone, and it puts the contact in there. I don't know. I think business cards are. Well, what do you prefer to do? Do you like to buy? What What do you prefer to buy a business, (laughs) to own a business, to start a business, to buy real estate, to cash the check, to do the reposition of the asset? You like making friends and having fun. That was that was what uh, the other. He likes to meet Trevor and Dane and have them do all the work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. I like that. Um, Yeah, I live my life by two rules: make friends is number one. Number two is have fun. And you would be surprised that's um, that can be a difficult thing for people to do. Um, Building relationships takes work, and having fun is a is a mindset. You know, you have to you have to want it you have to really strive for it and ha- and i mean it's you'd think just like oh i'm having fun i'm having fun not that kind of fun not like we're going to Chuck E. cheese and jumping the balls or something when we're kids you know not that kind of fun like fun fun so you know gross. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Actually, I looked forward to jumping in. Well, we could go back. We could do it again. I heard somebody land on a dirty needle though Ooh. a while back. I never jumped in the balls again. Um, yeah, but making friends and having fun, and uh, so ma- give me a title around that. Like when you ask, what is what do I like best? Um, I mean, I like it all for different reasons, but I got to say that of all the things I do, probably brokering would be my favorite. Uh, I get more juiced on doing a deal for somebody else than I do for myself. I have, you know, I have people that tell me just the opposite and, um, and that's okay. I think that in, in SMI, we have our DNA is that we bring in brokers that are investor minded. So these are folks that want to be investors or they're already investing. And so, um, you know, everybody has got sort of their own, you know, maybe they're 10% broker and 90% investor, or maybe they're opposite, mm. you know, maybe they're 90% broker and 10% investor. Um, I, for, for a long time, I was probably like, you know, I, Logan DeVos, who we'll have on the show also, one of my partners, <laughs> he came to me and he said, Gabe, you're doing like 90% broker and you need, and like 10% investor. We need to like dial this in. We, we need to be like 50, 50. Mm-hmm. I'm here to tell you, I don't think that's possible. I don't think you can do 50, 50. I think you're really always going to be like 90, so, 10 so. of one of the, <laughs> yeah. but yep. he, he claims that I did 90, 90 on I did 90 of each. So I just went all in on both. Two full-time jobs. Now, well, or three or four or five. Yeah. But it's not a job if you're having fun. But I get that thought process where I see it this way. You know, my investments are just a byproduct of what I do on a day-to-day basis as a developer. You know, I don't have the brokerage and the license, but I develop. So it's just a byproduct. The investments are the the side gig of running that business yeah i don't think about my buildings i don't when we close a deal on a building i don't get all juiced up about it i love doing deals i am a deal junkie so the deal part of it finding a deal winning a deal finding the funding for a deal figuring out how we're what we're going to do to reposition it um 
all of the all of the sort of front end exciting part of it, I'm all for it. Um, and once we close on it, to be honest, I want to throw the keys to somebody else and and let the team run with it. I'm not. I'll go show up and be excited that hey, it looks a lot better than it used to look, or yeah. the, hey, the rent rolls a lot better than it used to be. But um, owning the build, I'm not a big like. I don't love buildings. <laughs> like, I don't look at one building and go, wow, that's a beautiful mid-century colonial whatever. Like I'm not, I don't, I don't. I'm appreciative of good architecture. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get in. I mean, I, I, now that I own buildings, now I'll drive by and I'll be like, wow, I wish I owned that one instead of the piece of crap that I do own. <laughs> um, but for the most part, I mean, like sometimes it'll cross my mind. Like I'll drive by something. I'll be like, wow, I own that. What does that mean anyway? Well, that means like when the roof goes bad, they're going to call me and I got to write the check for it. Right. And if it ever cash flows one day, then I get a check in return. It's like, okay, cool. Let's go buy another one. Like owning the actual act of owning real estate is not terribly exciting. No, it's boring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and it gets hard after closing. I'm like you. It's all fun and dandy up to closing, and then I just want to move on and not think about it. But that's because you're at the top level of your organization, and you're the visionary, and you're the one that's, you know, let's dream up what's the next deal we're going to put in the it's portfolio. It's where you're involved. Your involvement, most level of involvement happens. But that's why you hire good asset managers and property managers, and you put a big, you know, if you do a good business plan and everybody have a good team, like you don't have to get involved in the weeds right. so much. But when you're getting started, you're everything. You're the visionary, you're the manager, you're the asset manager. You're like, I mean, it's just something that you have to do. And so I, I would highly recommend scaling. I've never, um, I've never done a deal without partners and I've never actually like managed a building myself by myself. Um, and so I'm definitely, you know, I came into property management on the, as an owner. And so I see the way I run that company is I, I look through the eyes of the investor and I want to run their buildings the way I would run them if they're mine. And I think that gives me a real advantage. I don't know all the little million things you're supposed to do in, in property management day to day, but I have a team for that and they geek out on all the rules and all the laws and the stuff and they keep us out of trouble and they're really sharp and that's what they want to do. But then when it comes to making a decision about where we're going to go with the building, that's when they bring me into the room because I can look at it and go, well, if I own this building and I sit with owners and I just go, hey, we're managing for you. You tell me how you want us to run this. And they'll go, well, what do you think? And I say, well, if it was my building, I'd do this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I just go, yeah, do that. <laughs> so it's easy. But but you know, if you're just a property manager and you've never owned anything, you know how to evict a tenant. You know how to find a tenant. You know how to do all these things and which notices and everything else to do. But you don't know the the skin in the game sort of feeling that you get um, when you own a building and, and why you make the decisions that you make. And so I think it's super important. This is why we want all of our brokers to do deals and to own their own buildings is because I believe that our brokers will provide a higher level of service if they have skin in the game. They won't. There, there's a competing argument that says those brokers will now go and they'll, you know, fight over deals with my clients or whatever. And that, and that's maybe every once in a while it could overlap a little bit. But I think that the positives far outweigh the negatives because when you pick up the phone and you call a broker, you want to call somebody that's just like, when do I get my commission? Or do you want to call somebody who's like, hey, bro, don't do this deal. <laughs> this is not the deal, but I got a different deal. You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. you want somebody who actually, I mean, brokers aren't bad people, but most of them have no idea what 
a deal is. Yeah. Like they, they don't know how to steer you. They know how to make sure the paperwork's right. And they just like a manager that knows how to manage a building, but they don't really know how to see it through an, an owner's lens. They so no clue. Most of them don't. Most of them don't. Yeah. Yeah. You could look at this thing and be like, we're going to lose like 300 grand if we buy this. And they're telling you it's great. Oh, it's a great deal. That's a great investment opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's a, a unique, really nice building. It's a unique investment yeah. opportunity. This is a huge part of how many de- How many buildings have you found where you could lose 300 grand? <laughs> it's unique. Actually, that's like probably a, a pretty common building. building. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. most of them. Of well, it's not unique at all, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, this is the Deal Junkies podcast. You haven't talked about any deals. Um, or any junkies. <laughs> well, you talked about yourself for a while. Sorry, I don't know. Damn. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Tough so crowd. Should we start landing this plane and then start a start a deal episode? Yeah, I want like for a takeaway for people listening to this, like a bunch of people that want to get into it. How did you do your first couple deals so they can see like what you actually did and possibly copy it? Well, so um just to give you the timeline again, I'm, I'm mid thirties. I get my real estate license. I start training with somebody. My my mentor Brian, who brought me in, said I am not going to teach you real estate unless you're going to be an investor. So that's that's where our our SMI DNA comes from. Is really from him telling me he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna teach me anything unless I was gonna buy buildings. That I was excited about. From that moment, I told him, actually, can we skip the broker thing and do the investor thing? He said, no, 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 you got to do the broker. <laughs> and I fell in love with the broker thing just because I, I I think I just love, I love to help people. I love to help them make money. I don't know. It's it's super rewarding. Um, where was I going with that? Uh, Your first deals. Oh, first deal. Yeah. So um, so Brian and I did our first deal. So, so in my first three years, I'm learning how to be a broker. And while I'm looking at deals, you know, I'm sitting in the office. You guys have 50 brokers and everybody's do their thing. When I, back in the day, it was just me sitting at a computer. <laughs> I'm like, uh, <laughs> where, should I, where should I look for a deal? I'm on Craigslist. I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's any deals on Craigslist. Hmm. Um, then, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, I find a deal. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a deal. And then I and he would sit back behind me. So I'd print it out and I'd say, here, I found a deal. And I'd bring him the deal. He's like, oh, nope, that's not a deal. He'd hand it back. So we did this over and over and over and over. And for three years, I didn't buy a deal. So now I'm in real estate. I want to buy a deal. I'm starting to broker some business. I'm making some money and uh, got a car. So I'm not, now there's two cars instead of one. <laughs> and um, now I'm ready. I want to, I want to do a deal so bad. And, uh, and so he says, okay, I found this deal. Finally, after three years, he found, he finds a, um, our first deal is a meth lab in Albany next to a school. Now it was, was, had already been, now it doesn't sound as bad as I'm making it sound. It had already been, it had already been certified to not be a meth lab anymore is now you can live there. And the roof was caving in on it. And so there was, it was like, it was like raining inside. Nobody lived on either, either side. And he says, okay, we got to buy this thing. It's only a hundred grand. So this is going to be our first deal. I'm buy a hundred thousand dollar duplex, former meth lab, gravel driveway. Perfect. Right. <laughs> and so, okay, how are we going to do this deal? Like this thing is not inhabitable. Back in those days, I didn't know about rehab loans or private money, hard money. I'd never even heard any of this stuff, right? Well, I got to come up with a hundred grand. I got to go find a hundred grand. So I went to one of my friends um, and I said, hey, can I borrow a hundred grand? 
<laughs> I'll pay you 10% interest. He says, yeah, I said, actually, I need like 125 because this thing needs work. He goes, yeah, 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 no problem. So he gave me 125. A friend of mine gave me 125,000, no points, 10% interest only. I don't even know that the loan ever even termed out. Um, <laughs> and so we started making payments on that and uh, we got the place cleaned up and, and Brian Bless his heart. He wanted me to look like I was the guy who bought these things and fixed them up. So like I would show up in like my dress clothes and like paint this building and we would like videotape it and stuff and make it like I actually did it. I actually painted the duplex. I put flooring in the duplex. So when I say, you know, I never got hands on, I did get a little hand. He said, you got to do this. And for him, he enjoyed it. He liked being hands on and doing that, mowing the lawn and doing all the stuff wasn't for me. That's just not, not who I was. Um, and so that building, I bought it, uh, 125,000 cash. I, I bought a hundred thousand cash and I had 25,000 left over. I put the 25 grand in, but we fell short and needed another 15,000 in. So this is, this is my first lesson in, in real estate investing. Now I got to write a check. Well, it's a $15,000 check. Thank God I have a partner. Now I only have to write a $7,500 check, but in those days, $7,500 was a lot of money to me. And so I was not very happy. I was like, mm -hmm. this thing sucks. <laughs> Why did I buy this stupid freaking duplex meth lab? Now I'm spending my weekends painting and putting in flooring. And now I'm writing a $7,500 check to this stupid building that's not even finished yet. So this is a dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so write the check, get the thing. You know, of course the project took a couple months longer than it was going to take and yada, yada. Everybody knows that story. It always does. It always goes over time, over budget. Okay. So we get the building done and we get it rented up. We get it, we get some really good rents on both sides and this thing starts cash flowing. And I get my first check. It's like, I should have saved it. It's like $273 or something. I get my check and I was like, oh, I love this building. This <laughs> <laughs> is the best building ever. I love this duplex. And so we kept it for about another year on that debt, ended up refinancing it into a normal loan. And then it cash flowed even better, waited about another year, sold that and traded it into an 11 unit complex. And so then I started to see how it goes. And what nobody really ever told me was, you know, I was going to spend three years to find my first deal and then I was going to get it. And then I was going to have to work my ass off. And then I was going to have to start writing checks to it. I was like, talk about delayed gratification and yeah. sacrifice. I'm going like, this isn't what, this isn't like what I signed up for. Like I signed up for, I'm going to be a real estate mogul mm. and people are just going to mail me money all the time. Right. <laughs> uh, so didn't, yeah. So what I didn't understand was uh, the stabilization process. I didn't understand that when you buy an asset, whether you're building something new or you're buying something that needs to be repositioned, even if you're just buying something that's turnkey, I bet you you're paying too much and it's going to need to be stabilized somehow. Right. Like, in the beginning, you're going to write a big check to get in, and then you're going to keep writing checks for a while until, you know, maybe it's positive cash flow, but it's not going to be giving you the return that it should be giving you in the very beginning. So maybe that takes you six months or a year. 
in my case, some of the rougher ones were two to three years. And I never realized that, you know, Paul and I, uh, when we talk about this, we say it's like hopping on a wild stallion and then like, you got to try to just hang on. So then at that point, it's just like, okay, like (laughs) write another check, write another check. I'm not going to fall off of this thing. You know, and at some point you tame that horse and it starts, it becomes your friend and it starts writing checks back to you. And that's the way, at least hopefully it does. And um, then you love them. Once they start printing cash, then you love them. They print too much cash. You really love them. That's when you should sell them or go borrow against them and buy something else. Go buy well, another one you don't like. And as you're doing that, as you're hanging on, you have never stopped the deal acquisition side. You're still looking for the next property to buy. And so that's really how you go is you're adding layers and layers of work onto your foundation, which is looking and finding deals. And then you can buy too many at once because all the deals come at once. (laughs) Everybody finally says yes, all at once. And then you do too many all at once. You run out of money and then you got all these buildings and Trevor's learned the lesson. Like you don't buy, you don't want to buy too many value add properties all at once. Right? Like, I suppose you could sort of like divide your plan and make like half your portfolio your slumlord and half your portfolio you're actually doing the value add and then switch over once you have enough money. But we always like to we we try to not be slumlord. I was gonna say, did you just identify yourself? No, I mean sometimes that's just the best financial way to go. I I think I think like holding off on doing a full remodel on a unit and leaving the existing flooring there and cleaning it is not necessarily slumlord. Slumlord is like I only put in you know, convicts and sex offenders and I charge too much rent because they can't live anywhere else. You just have such a high standard that if someone has ca- carpet for more than five years, you're a slumlord. I, 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 there is a business model I've been told that like not improving your properties and keeping your rents at a certain level below market is the best way to make money. I think that if you're looking at cash flow, that might be true. If you're a cash flow buyer, low leverage, pay off the debt, and then maybe you don't want to do the carpet, especially when you're living off of that paycheck every month. But when you're building equity like we, we're we doing and we're building these portfolios and we're trying to generate equity, mm-hmm. then we got to boost the rent roll. And to me, it's like, I'm gonna if I can raise the rent $200, I'm going to put flooring in. Yeah. Doesn't make sense not to. Gains, it's <laughs> values in the gains, not the cash. There you go. There you go. Why did it take you three years to find one deal? Well, okay. So what a slacker. I was only going to be, first off, I had to learn the business. I had to learn how to do deals. And I started in, I, I started with Brian in 2011, but I got licensed in the beginning of 2012. So almost to the day I've been licensed for 12 years. Um, and then I had to get in and really try to figure out what I was doing. And that, you know, that took a year. So it took me almost a year to close my first deal. So, and no one was buying real estate this period. Yeah. 2012. I mean, we're coming out of the crash and um, you guys probably remember it, but you were young and there was just nothing, there was just nothing happening. Banks weren't lending, deals weren't happening. I mean, it was, it was kind of like last year <laughs> a little bit, it sort of felt like that. There's just nothing going on. Like in all of, I think it was in all of the Salem and surrounding Metro markets, they did, um, they looked at how many multifamily properties sold that first year I started and there was only 16 properties in the entire year for Salem and surrounding area. You know, now it's hundreds or whatever, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know. So, um, so yeah, there was there was just not a lot of deals happening. It was a good time to be buying because there were not a lot of deals happening, and so you could find good deals. What I thought was a good deal, but I was too scared to do a deal by myself. Uh, 
If I were to take myself back in a time machine, I'd buy every single one of those deals that I dropped on Brian's desk. I would have found a way. I mean, it, it would have been my portfolio would be three times bigger today, right? Just from the growth of those those assets. So, but he was super conservative and bought only for cash flow. And he bought with on a model that was like, if it's like it has to one hundred percent guarantee be a deal or we're not doing that deal. There was no risk at all or he wasn't doing the deal, especially not with me. And so that's why is I was too scared to do it by myself and he was too conservative to do any of the deals that I was bringing him. He got out of the game when, when it hit like 75 a door. He said, I'm out. He bounced. He stopped buying it about that time. And so everybody has their own appetite for risk, you know, and there's something interesting. Um, as you build wealth over time, you'll change. Because when you have nothing to lose, you're just all in, like, let's go. But once you build something, it depends on how you look at that and what you've built and how willing you are to lose it. Because a lot of people don't want to take a step back or two steps back or risk at all, right? Once you're all in, not all of us are Elon Musk who, you know, make 300 billion on PayPal and then go put 299 billion into <laughs> Tesla or SpaceX or whatever. I mean, like, <laughs> and that's cool. Like, I, I really respect that part of the story if it's true. Uh, but most people, they get to that point. I mean, first off, anyone sitting in this room, we get to 300 billion, I think. I mean, we'll probably go try to do a deal. I don't know what we're going to buy. <laughs> we're going to try to go buy something <laughs> crazy, right? Mars. <laughs> oh, what so that I would say fear and not and maybe just a lack of understanding. You know, I just didn't, I was not going to do my first deal without him. And, um, and I really respect people that I see that go out and they, they say, I'm not going to take partners. I'm going to do this by myself. So would you recommend people today, if they're in a similar spot, they don't know how to do a deal just to go try to do a deal and learn from it or to wait till they find someone and find that perfect deal? And Well, what Brian always taught me was you just don't want to stub your toe on the first deal. Um, and so, I mean, I think like you know, Mark Gallegos, who's a guy we'll have on the show. I've listened to him talk about how he underwrote 300 deals before he did his first deal. I think, um, you're, tell me your question again. Help me. Like you're, you're asking if they should just run out and do a deal. Not just run out and do a deal, but not wait so long, like and take a little more risk with it. Like, well, I mean, here's the thing about deals is, you don't really go find deals. Deals find you. So you've got to become a magnet. You've got to, it's like money. Money's the same way. You've got to, you've got to create an aura about yourself that attracts deals and attracts money. We talked about this the first time we ever met. Remember I told you, mm -hmm. don't go chase them. Find a way to get them to come to you, right? And so this, this is... The problem with good deals and why we do too many deals at once sometimes is because they all come at once. We don't get we don't just go like look at the spreadsheet. It's January 29th. We should be doing two deals right now. We're doing one. Dane, go find us a deal. Mm. Like literally, we'll be going like, boy, are we doing deals right now? Are we not doing deals. Sometimes we're doing a lot, sometimes we're doing a little, and it just ebbs and flows, right? And so I think that I think that um if you don't know what you're doing, the first thing you need to do is go figure out what you're doing. And if you can't figure out what you're doing and you're dumb like me, then go find smart people 
that know what they're doing and find a way to get them to bring you in on deals. Even if that means you're going to invest 10% into one of their deals or whatever, like find a way into investing into real estate where you're around people that you trust, that know the things that you don't really understand. And I mean- Elon, there's another Elon Musk thing is, is they go like, how do you figure out how to build, you know, spaceships or rockets or whatever? He's like, oh, it's easy. It's, somebody wrote a book about it. Like, <laughs> just go buy the book and read the book. I mean, how, how do you get rich in real estate? I don't know. Somebody wrote a book about it. Go read the book. I mean, if you just read, there's books about, there's a million books about how to get rich in real estate. Every single one of them almost tells you the same thing. Just go read one of them. You don't have to read all of them. Just read one of them. And so I would say, don't do a deal until you know what a deal is. And if you're smart enough to know what a deal is, um, then it's it's no longer about, find, everybody thinks you got to go find money to do a deal. You don't have to find money to do a deal. You got to find a deal. The money just comes. So if you find a deal, as a matter of fact, if you're listening to this podcast and you find a deal, you don't know what to do with it, Call us. <laughs> Call the deal junkies. We'll put you on live air. We'll do the deal with you. We will put this deal together for you. Um, find somebody. So find somebody to help you put that deal together. The money, the money part of it is not what's holding you back from doing a deal. It's it's your own. Uh, it's your own head. It's your fear. It's your lack of understanding. And it might be a lack of your network and not having the right connections. So school yourself, go to investor meetups, uh, talk to people, take people to coffee, take people to lunch, read books, listen to podcasts, do the whole thing. But I will say this before, I know I've talked for a long time, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, another book I have to always tell people to read. One of the things Napoleon Hill says is, Action is the highest form of intelligence. So we always say if we talk about doing deals, we'll do more deals. But if that's all we do is talk about doing deals, we're not going to do any deals because we're going to sit here and talk. And I'll say this too about real estate. Talking about real estate boosts your ego. It makes you feel like a hot shot. People love to talk about real estate. You guys know as brokers, you, you you figure out like you're talking to people, you talk to people all the time. I want to do a deal, want to do a deal. You send them a dealer, yeah, not that one, eh, not that one. Well, then you start to think, well, do you really want to do a deal or do you just want to talk about doing mm-hmm. a deal, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a component there and, and, and we don't have to get into this now. We can do it on a whole other episode, but I think ego is the antithesis to success in real estate. I think that and, and really all ego is, is fear. You create ego out of fear. And in that ego is, I've got to be, I got to try to pretend to be something that I'm not. And it's a trap. There's the real estate thing is a trap because we get to sit and talk about doing multi-million dollar deals and blah, blah, blah. And it, it sounds fun and exciting and it's cool. I mean, there's a reason we do a podcast about real estate. We call ourselves deal junkies. Like we, it is a drug. We love it, right? We want to do deals. All we want to do all the time is talk about deals and do deals. So here we are. But I would say, don't just, I mean, definitely talk about deals. I'm into it and learn about it and all the other stuff, but you're never going to learn, uh, on a podcast or a book, what you're going to learn going out and doing yeah, your first you deal. You got, you got to have like, you got to have a couple sleepless nights and you got to have like 
some you got to get some skin in the game. You got to get your heart pumping a little bit here. Mm-hmm. This is this is not for the faint of heart. This is this is the real deal. Sweet. Well, Mike, I'll let you land the plane. <laughs> <laughs> it's a soft landing. <laughs> How do we? Uh, you, can't, you can't do a soft landing after. <laughs> what was it? Snorting cap rates and shooting up. <laughs> shooting up cash flow. <laughs> Trevor shooting up negative cash flow. Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's an appreciation game, right? <laughs> we live on the West Coast. We're here for appreciation. We're not here to make money. And that, folks, is the uh, third episode of Drunk Real Estate. Where we, uh, <laughs> drunk, drunk Real Estate. Drunk. <laughs> Deal junkies. Shout out to them. What's in that coffee Shout cup? Out to your Deal buddies. junkies. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out how you snort cash flow. <laughs> and negative cash flow. Don't. Meet game may on may all your deals have lots of gains and no negative cash flow. Mm. Amen. <laughs>